Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, what we've been talking about is this division or this concept of Jews and Gentiles in this particular passage. I'm going to go over what I've gone over a couple times now already. This will be the third time, briefly, every time I make it a little shorter, but it sets up the context for where we're at, where we're headed. And what we're going to talk about is Gentile biography, which is in verses 11 to 22. This is the story of Gentiles. Uh, If you want to read the story of Gentiles in the Old Testament, like this theological biography, it's really not there because the Old Testament only has a a little Gentile here, a little Gentile there, but by and large, Gentiles were excluded from what God was doing. They were excluded from the grace of God. That is the special saving grace. They, they enjoyed common mercies and grace. It, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. Uh, they enjoyed breathing God's good air, seeing his blue sky, all those types of things. But for the most Gentiles, well, through the Old Testament, they were not his chosen people. God was not dealing with them. So Gentile biography includes three parts. There's a at one part, there's a but now part, and then there's a so then, and I added from last week, an also part. I'm going to do this really quick because we've already done it in detail. It looks like this. At one time, in verses 11 and 12, I've reduced it to one sentence. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope, and without God. That's the story of Gentiles in the Old Testament. It's a dark story without God and without hope. But now, oh, I guess you reduce it to they were excluded and they were outsiders. But now, in verses 13, now in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you reduce that down to a word or two, and it's, we, we at one time were excluded and outsiders, but now we're included in Christ, by Christ, through Christ. has everything to do with Christ. We went from alienated outsiders to included insiders in Christ. And then the last part, You've got a so then and an also, verses 19 to 22. I think last week I I would finish this week, and I won't. I've got one more week to finish, then I'm off to Albuquerque for a long weekend to see Ryan and Katie. But uh, verses 19 to 22 looks like this. So then, here's the purpose, why you're included. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. And then the also parts, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the Gentile story in all of the Bible. If you put all the Bible together, there's a at one time, but now, so then, and also. The story of Gentiles. This is a new community. It's a new entity. The summary statement then to this point looks like this. By the blood of Christ, Gentiles have been brought near to Israel and to God. Israel was already in a privileged position. They had the covenants. They had the scriptures. They had the promises. They had the prophets. 
They had the priests. They had all these advantages. And now Jews get to share in all of that rich heritage because of Christ. So by the blood of Christ, it required his death. Gentiles have been brought near to Israel and to God. This idea of nearness is key in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. An idea of now you're near. Now you are insiders. That didn't used to be the case. So in order to bring about this nearness, Jesus had to eliminate the hostility that existed and he has to replace it with peace. To make, uh, to make all this nearness a reality, something has to be done with the hostility. Not only does it need to be removed, but it needs to be replaced with peace. And so, what we've developed now for a couple weeks, we recognize there was a horizontal hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It had been in place for centuries of time. The law was a wall of hostility separating Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, for the most part, they didn't want to live like a Jew. They didn't want to place themselves under all those laws. They were used to eating pork chops, and they liked them. Some of you guys like eating bacon. I don't really care for bacon other than BLTs. But some of you guys really like bacon, and you're like, I, I don't want to have to give up my bacon in the morning for you know bacon and eggs and toast. Gentiles didn't want to live like Jews. They thought it was odd. They thought it was bizarre. The, their practices, their standards, their, all these Sabbath regulations, it, was, it, it didn't make sense to them. And so an hostility built up, a horizontal hostility. But it was not only that, there was also a vertical hostility between Jews and God and Gentiles and God. There's lots of hostility in the Bible. And Jesus, to create this one new thing, has to eliminate the hostility and replace it with peace. And that's exactly what happens, what Paul describes happening in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at how it takes place. It has everything to do with verbs. Uh, there's more verbs than the three verbs, the three key verbs I'm going to show you on the screen. But these are the three that really tell the story. We'll add a few more to it as we read the text a little bit later on. And this is all really still review from last week. The three verbs, how does, how does Christ bring Gentiles near to Israel and to God? Well, first he abolishes something. After abolishing something, he creates something. And after creating something, he reconciles something. Christ does all three of those things. It abolishes the hostility and it, it becomes the basis of peace. Wholeness completeness. Let's break it down. We looked last week at what Christ abolished. I suggested to you that was Mosaic law. The, the covenant of law that Moses received up on Mount Sinai that you read about in, in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Uh, that word abolished can be translated and sometimes it has the meaning of to make idle or to render inactive. It also carries the meaning of to destroy but if I were to throw that word up on there, it probably wouldn't be a great word because he didn't destroy the law like, it's not working, I'm done with it. He fulfilled it. He, he rendered it useless. He nullified it by completing everything that the law could possibly require. It's the same word that's used oftentimes, especially in Matthew's gospel, when it says, um, something happened in such a way, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. Once it was fulfilled what the prophet was spoke, what, what the prophet spoke, you don't still look for it to be fulfilled. It's not an active prophecy. It's a fulfilled prophecy. It's done with. It served its purpose. It pointed to Christ. He fulfilled the prophecy. Now it's done. Mosaic law was fulfilled by Christ. Not destroyed, but by fulfilling it, he made, rendered it idle. He rendered it inactive. The verb that's used here in the English Standard Version is he abolished it. He abolished the law. Verse 14 in the chapter we're in says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Christ nullified Mosaic law. It's rendered inactive. This should not come as a surprise. Paul has argued this every, almost every time he writes a letter. There's some reference to the law being rendered inactive, nullified. It served its purpose, and it's done. In the book of Galatians, it talks about how Abraham received a covenant of promise. It's unconditional. We are still part of the fulfillment of Abraham's unconditional promise. We're children of promise. We're seed of Abraham by virtue of faith. There's a connection there, but... But Paul argues in Galatians, the law came 430 years after the promise. It can't nullify the promise. It was added alongside for a time, and once its purpose was served, it's nullified. It's rendered inactive. It's set aside. It's no longer valid. Davidic, uh, God's promise to David, is an unconditional promise. It's still active. It's still... still Uh, In place. The new covenant is active. It's in place. Mosaic covenant was never unconditional. It was always for a time. Until that time it served its purpose. And Paul says that's happened. Let me show you a couple references. In Galatians where I referred a moment ago. Paul says, now before faith came. We were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. Until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And then I don't have room for the rest. But now, we are no longer under a guardian because we have faith in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. He rendered it inactive. We're no longer imprisoned by the law. We're no longer held captive by the law. It was all fulfilled in Christ. It's set aside. That's Paul's argument. Because this is what's going to eliminate the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 10, For Christ is the end of the law, for for righteousness, for everyone who believes, to everyone who believes, the end of the law. It served its purpose. Christ came. He fulfilled it. It's the end. If your faith is in Christ. Back in same book, Romans, chapter 7, Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not the old way of the written code. Christians aren't meant to live under Mosaic law. That's the old way of the written code. We serve under the law of Christ, the new way of the Spirit. 
It's a law of love. That's what rules the church. That's what rules uh, Jew and Gentile by virtue of faith in Christ. And Paul's argued for this all along. But Paul was not the first one to announce that Mosaic law had been nullified. Now, Paul, Paul made that point more than anybody else made that point because he wrote so many different uh, books of the New Testament. He wrote so many letters in the New Testament. He made that point more than anybody else, but he wasn't the first one to say Mosaic law had been nullified. Do you know who the first one was? You don't have to answer, just kind of think in your head. Who was the first one to nullify or proclaim Mosaic law has served its purpose, it's rendered useless, it's set aside? Who is number one? Does anybody want to give it a guess? I'll let you. Anybody? Not Peter. Not Peter. Peter's a great guess. Not Jesus. Not Stephen. Not John the Baptist. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 27. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 834 and 835. Matthew's Gospel. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross. Matthew chapter 27. Next to the last chapter of that first gospel. I'm going to pick up with verse 45 as is on the screen. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, those are our beholds like from Isaiah. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God was the first one to announce Mosaic law had been rendered inactive. God was the one when Jesus cried, it is finished, and breathed his last. God ripped the curtain in the temple from top to bottom. It's not a curtain like this kind of curtain. It's a curtain. It's, it was so multi-layered and thick. I think most scholars would say it was several inches thick, torn from top to bottom. God's declaration is he's fulfilled it all. We're done with this. It's set aside. A new day is coming. Because a new covenant has been inaugurated by his shed blood on the cross. We celebrate it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do in remembrance of me. The book of Hebrews kind of then theologically, doctrinally unpacks what God did when he tore the curtain from top to bottom. God's the one who announced it. And Hebrews explains it. Well, let me tell you why God did that. So if we were to spend time in Hebrews, which we won't, in Hebrews we would find out Christ is a better high priest. Better than Aaron. Better than Phineas. Better than any high priest you could possibly ever read about in the Old Testament. Christ was a better high priest. We also read he was a better sacrifice. And by the way, that's exactly the word that's used in Hebrews. It keeps using the word better, better, better. He's a better sacrifice. 
than the most perfect spotless lamb. Christ is a better sacrifice. We read that uh, he, he inaugurates a better covenant. Not like the covenant that was made with our forefathers, which we broke, speaking of Israel. It's a better covenant. It's a covenant based upon his sacrifice, his blood, of which he is priest. We also read it's a better ministry because he ever lives to intercede for his people. We read it's built based on better promises because he's accomplished everything that could possibly demand it under this covenant. And then finally, we have a better hope. All these things are better. And so it's pretty obvious, given that situation, God has declared, I'm done with this. Why would you want to offer another lamb? When I've sent the perfect lamb from, from my throne who offered himself and became sufficient for the sins of the world. Now, the way Paul puts it, he doesn't write everything that the author of Hebrews does. The way Paul explains all this is in the statement, for he himself is our peace. That sums up what Hebrews writes. He's a better high priest. He's a better sacrifice. It's a better covenant. It's a better ministry. It's based on better promises. We have better hope. That is, he is our peace. Not he brought peace. Not he accomplished peace. Not he enacted peace. He is the peace. He is the peace. My faith isn't in a system. It's in a person. He is the peace. So now, what was hostility is replaced with horizontal peace by his blood. It looks something like this. The wall between Jews and Gentiles was broken down when Christ rendered Mosaic law inactive at his death. Jews and Gentiles, common faith in Christ initiates peace where formerly there had been hostility and hatred. Formerly, all they could see was their differences. But now, by virtue of their faith in Christ, there's more to celebrate than there possibly could ever be a difference. We have faith in Christ. He's all those better things. And the hostility is replaced with peace. I mean, by way of application, if you need an application, because we're not really going to be heading into application until we get to Ephesians chapter 4, which who knows exactly when that'll be, but it's not today. <sighs> But the word of one word of application is, no matter how you may differ from another Christian who has been purchased by the blood of Christ, their, their faith is in Christ and Christ alone, you have more in common with them than how you vote in a polling booth or what your views of spending money are or economics or governmental systems or what, sports. Whatever your differences are, what you have in common in Christ is to be celebrated Far more than, oh, I could never get along with that person. Their views are different. Not if they're saved by Christ. All right. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to start reading a verse uh, 14. Well, I suppose I should probably just read verse 14. <clears throat> and uh, let's build on this a little bit further. Verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 2 says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Is that where I said I would end? Yes, that's where I said I would end. All right, so if you, in light of what I just read, it's evident that there's a peace even greater than the peace that exists or was attained by Christ's death between Jew and Gentile. Because remember that wall of hostility? It wasn't just between Jews and Gentiles. That wall of hostility is also vertical. It's between Jews and God and Gentiles and God. We've also got, an, we've got another wall. We've got more hostility, which the word can be translated enemy, hatred. We've got more hatred going on. We've got uh, enemies in place here, vertically, between all sinners and God. And Christ is going to eliminate that hostility as well. Because he himself is our peace. It looks something like this to explain the hostility. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, that's the same word that's translated wall of hostility, hostility, it's enemies, same word. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were God's enemies. There was hostility between us and God. We didn't like God. Guess what? God didn't like us. And if you're like, well, wait a minute, doesn't John 3.16 say God so loved the world? That's true. I don't think there's a tension between the two. I think when, when the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 5, you hate all the workers of iniquity, and that includes me, it's also true God loves us. That both are true at the same time. God hates not only the sin, he hates the sinner. He also loves the sinner. So much so, he sent his only begotten into the, into the world, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not an either-or situation. It's both and. So we were his enemies. God counted us as enemies. There was hostility between us and God. Romans chapter 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's hostility between sinners and God. It doesn't mean sinners aren't religious. All over the world, most people are religious. Even people account themselves atheists. They hold to their tenets of belief as if it were a religion. They live by what they believe. It's all religion. But the mindset on the flesh is hostile to the God of Scripture. And then in Colossians chapter 1, which is very similar to Ephesians, Colossians says to Gentiles, and you, or Paul says to the Colossians who were Gentiles, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. That sounds like Ephesians. You were alienated, you were strangers, you were without God, you were without hope. Same thing. You were once alienated and God's enemies in your mind. Doing evil deeds, he now is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. For Christ to bring peace, for him to eliminate this wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles with God, that wall has to be brought down. And Christ does exactly that because he himself is our peace. 
to explain this, I'll give you the same two statements in relation to vertical piece. It looks like this. The wall between sinners and God was broken down when Christ fulfilled all the demands of righteousness as given in Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law revealed that if you want a right, justified relationship with God, you have to live in perfect requirement of everything that God has established as being right to do. And so the law, in a practical sense, all it does is show you that you're not that right. In fact, you're wrong about a lot of things. Even if you were to reduce Moses' law of 613 commandments down to the 10 that got written on tablets of stone, even if you could do that and only have to pick 5 of the 10, you would fail. Let's say, okay, covet. I wouldn't want to pick that one. You know, steal. Yeah, I broke that one a long time ago. Lie. Well, shoot, you're hardly toddling along and you've broken that one. I mean, have no other gods before me? I still struggle with no other gods before God. No graven images? No lustful thoughts and desires? I mean, what laws are you going to pick to justify yourself before this God? Christ didn't break any law. Word, thought, deed, motivation. He kept the law perfectly. And by keeping the law perfectly, by fulfilling all the demands of righteousness, a sinner's faith in Christ results in peace where formerly there had been hostility and hatred between sinners and God. Because now, when God looks at me, he doesn't look at me as, oh, I finally upped my game. He looks at me as, I see Christ, I see my son. He kept the law. He lived perfectly. That's why, that's why uh, it, seems like, it seems like I threw a quote up there. Maybe it was last week or I don't, maybe it was a conversation. That's why at the end of the day, oh, it was the Puritan. That's why I don't look to myself for my righteousness. Do I see, where's the grace in my life? How am I evidencing God's grace? That's where my assurance comes from. I look to Christ. On that last day, you know, back when I was, uh, you know, in my Baptist tradition growing up years, it would be like uh, you would tell somebody, if you were stand before God in heaven and, you, and he were to say, why should I let you into my, into my heaven? What would you say? And a lot of times people fumble with, well, you know, here's what I did. Here's what I didn't do. I'm like, it's all about that person. It's all about, about his son. It's all about Christ. My faith is in that person. He's transformed my life. He's changed my life. My only hope of heaven isn't that I had my devotions in the morning or I had them all seven days of the week. My only hope of entrance into the kingdom of heaven is that Christ is my sufficient righteousness. I look to him. Luther hammered this point, and the Reformed tradition didn't like it as well as the Lutheran tradition, and they both have something to say, and it's all part of the whole truth, but at the end of the day, you look to Christ, not to your own good works. You don't look to how you've been changed, you look to Christ. Because no matter how much you've been changed... And I hope if you're a Christian, you have been changed because it does demonstrate a work of grace. But no matter how much you've been changed, it's not good enough to get into the kingdom of heaven by yourself. You will never not look to Christ. You will never not need Christ for entrance into that kingdom. So, Jesus abolished something. Jesus also created something. 
In verse, uh, the last part of verse 15, it says, In order that he might create the two in himself into one new man, thus making peace. That word verb create in the New Testament is only used of God. People don't create. We make things. We design things. We use create in a very lower sense. But in the idea of sovereignly, powerfully create out of nothing, only God does that kind of creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, if any man be in Christ, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creation. What was old has passed away. Behold, behold, all things have become new. It doesn't mean I stopped being myself. I'm, I'm still Cliff. I still got the same personality. You know, I've still got, I mean, it's still me, but but in another sense, it's all new. By the way, when, when God created, actually, I think I've got the verse in my notes here somewhere, so I make sure I get it right. In Genesis chapter 1, well, I thought it was in my notes. In Genesis chapter 1, and God created man in his own image. In his own image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's creation into humanity, and yet there's still a distinction between male and female. When God creates the two in himself into one new man, around the throne of the Lamb, there's still going to be every tribe, nation, tongue, language. There's going to be Jews. There's going to be Gentiles. There's going to be men. There's going to be women. You don't stop being those things when you're created into this new man. You don't lose all those other distinctions. They just pale in comparison to the faith you have in Christ that makes you this new person. So this one new man, I take that as the church. It's something new. It, was, it wasn't there before. It required the death of Christ. This is, not, this is not the believing people of God under the Old Testament Scriptures. This required the death of Christ, and it results in Jew and Gentile harmony, both being brought before God into this new thing, new creation, which we call the church, and it makes for peace. The reconciliation part of this whole process is in what follows, and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, reconcile us both to God in one body, that's comparable to the one new man, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We're reconciled to God. The hostility's ended. The hatred, the, my enemy, my status as God's enemy has ended because Christ has brought me before God Almighty and my faith is in Him. He is my righteousness. Everything's changed because of who He is and what He has done. So we're both reconciled as church through the cross. The hostilities ended. Verse 17. And He, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. When did Christ do that preaching? I don't think it's what you read about in the Gospels. That was before the cross. That was, uh, you don't preach the reconciliation until the sacrifice has been made. So first he had to make the sacrifice. He had to be the priest. He had to accomplish redemption. When it was finished, and at the resurrection, especially in John's Gospel, what Jesus commonly says after he's resurrected, he appears in a room to his disciples and he says, Peace be to you. 
Over and over, he says, peace be to you. He's preaching peace after his resurrection. I think this preaching of peace is done through the apostles. I think it's done through the prophets. I think it's done through his church. I think the church's mission is to preach the peace of Christ. Paul argues for as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The church's job is to preach the reconciliation and the peace which was won by Christ by virtue of his death. By virtue of his death. Then verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's kind of a unique verse in that you have the Trinity there. So through the Son, we both have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. God's work of redemption is through His Son, by His Spirit, reconciled to God the Father. And by the way, just in case there's a misunderstanding, you know, we were God's enemies, but it's because of God's love that redemption was purposed and planned and the Son was sent. It's not like some people have the idea that God is, the Father is against us and the Son got in the gap, stood in the gap, and, and quelled the Father's wrath. It was the Father's love that sent the Son. So yes, the Father had anger. There is the wrath of God. It's a real thing. But it was also the love of God that sent the Son. And then that, that idea of access, that, that's at least as shocking as anything we've read so far in chapter 2. We have access to God Friends, even in the Old Testament, Israel, with all of their advantages, did not have easy access to God. <laughs> I mean, Gentiles, yeah, they had their courtyard if you showed some interest in Jewish Judaism. And then the women had their courtyard and the men had their courtyard, but you had to know how far you could get to this God who is holy. The priests had their courtyard, one tribe out of 12. They were a little closer than anybody else. And then out of that priestly tribe, there was one high priest on one day a year for however long it took him, dared to go into the most holy place where God's presence was associated with this mercy seat which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And now you're telling me Jews and Gentiles have access to that God? That's the new covenant. Why in the world would you want to live under an old covenant where you have all those degrees of separation from that God when in Christ this is the privilege of Christians? One last slide. And that's my question mark. What are your comments and questions? Oh, sure, there's... Th I mean, so, so how is it that Gentiles or Jews, how is it that any sinner has peace with God? It's, faith isn't the one and only peace. It's a whole package deal. It's a whole plan of salvation, okay? So there's regeneration. There's justification, which is, follows faith. So God makes... A, well, we read about that in, in Ephesians chapter 2, right? I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. You know, we have faith in Christ. But by virtue of our faith in Christ, God declares us justified. We are his workmanship, created unto good works. So it's, it's all those things. That then there, you know, it's this process of God's grace being integrated into our lives so that everything looks new. 
and eventually it's glorification. So it's all of that. It's all of it. But it starts with God's grace. Start, I mean, in Ephesians 1, it starts with God's grace before I was ever here. So it's an entire process. But from my vantage point, I don't understand what God was doing from before the creation of the world other than what he's told me in Scripture. From my vantage point, what I'm told is believe the gospel. You believe the gospel. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call upon the name of the Lord, you will be declared righteous because of Christ and his work. So it's all of that. It's all of that. Somebody, yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's all kinds of wisdom. We understand something about the righteous character of God. We understand something of how God fashioned his people to live for a time under the old way of a written code, which is superseded by the new way of the living spirit. There's some laws that are exactly the same. It's kind of like when you live in Illinois, you've got a, a speed limit law. You know, on the, on the interstate, it's 70 miles an hour. And Sergeant Earls is here. He knows we all keep the law. 70, and you go over to Indiana, and it's 70 miles an hour. You're not keeping Illinois' law when you're in Indiana. It's the same law, but now you're under Indiana's law. So the Old Testament law says, have no other gods before me, no idols. New Testament also says, have no other gods. Flee from idolatry. So I'm keeping the exact same law, same law not because Moses, I'm under Moses' law, but because that law is also repeated to me as a believer. Um, that's a, that is such a point, though. There are books written where people disagree with how are we to understand Moses' law because it seems so shocking that I'm going to contend with I'm not under any of those laws, including the Big Ten, not because they're part of Moses' law. I'm under those laws to the extent that they are repeated and revealed as the law of Christ in the New Testament but not because it's Moses' law. Because once I put myself under Moses' law, I will argue that the Bible says it's a package deal. All or nothing. You don't get to pick the ten. You don't get to pick the ones you like. It's all, it's, if you're under Moses' law, you're under even to the least of these of my commandments, which includes mixed fabrics and plowing your field with two different kinds of crops and on and on and on. On and on and on it goes. But it's highly debated. Good Christians disagree with me. I mean good Christians. And maybe I'm wrong. I just haven't been able to see that I'm wrong. Maybe I'm stubborn. That's probably true too. It's a fascinating point though. But actually we get to move on now, which I've really had to wrestle through getting this far. So next week then we will wrap it up with uh, kind of probably picking up a little bit with verse 18. What does it mean we have access to the Father? You know, and then this, this new entity, this new creation in verses 19 to 22, how we are this new structure uh, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. So we'll be able to wrap up chapter 2 next week, which I'm really very committed to since the week after that. Uh, Sean Lewis will be here, uh, and I won't be here. So let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.